0: Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God, without error, and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor the Jim. The book of Amos, still. Like I was telling them in the last service, we only have seven more lessons out of Amos to go. Uh, that's a joke. Um I love y'all because you're all alright cool, seven more seven more service to sermons than there Amos, that's cool. Amos is tough on me, but I love it, it's all right I'll be all, I'll be all right. I appreciate y'all. So let me tell you something because of the truths that I've just spoken, the 23 and 24 of Romans chapter three, we do deserve judgment, but we haven't been given judgment. And so that's what I want to talk to you about today. I want to talk to you about judgment. And I know that we've talked about judgment almost repeatedly every week for the last ten weeks. This is only the fifth of these sermons, but there were five dangerous prayers before that and how if we didn't become or allow God to mold us into who we're supposed to be, judgment's coming. But they're on purpose. These sermons are on purpose. I got to ask. Um, jokingly, and I know it was a joke, and I didn't take offense to it. But somebody asked me, they said, when are you going to give us a a grace and mercy message, man? Stomping our feet flat or something like that. And let me tell you, I'd love to sit up here and give you a best life now message. That everything is going to be all right and it's all good and that God loves you regardless of who you are or what you've done. I'd love to be able to do all of those things. But I'm not called to do all of those things. And so I I figure I'll give a grace and mercy specific and only message when God calls me to do that. For right now, he wants to talk about judgment. He wants to talk about what happens if we don't receive his grace and mercy. Amen? And so we're going to do that today with a sermon, a lesson titled, Five visions of judgment. Did you guys know we serve a holy God? A perfect God? A God without blemish. That's a God that we serve. I can prove this to you in Scripture. Psalms 18:30 says this: As for the God, his way, as for God, his way is blameless, which is perfect. The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in Him. Deuteronomy 32, 4 says, God is the rock, which a rock is immovable, unshakable, unbreakable. You can can build whatever it is you're building on Him because His work is perfect for all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is He. But the people in Amos' time have taken God's loving perfection and misused it. The perfection of God in all things is perfect. He is perfect in everything that He is. And so He displayed perfect love to them, and they misused it. He gave them privilege to be His people, and they misused it. They abused it. It's the reason why we call this sermon series Abusing Privilege. Because they took what God intended to glorify Himself and used it to glorify themselves and elevate themselves. And they did this, as we know, through the book of Amos, by practicing false religion, by setting up idols, by staining the holy place, by oppressing and neglecting the poor, by rebelling against his authority, by misusing their wealth, by growing complacent concerning the things of God. Wait a minute. That sounds like us. And in fact, it is us. I told you from the very beginning. I'm not teaching this lesson because I care what what happened two thousand years ago. I'm teaching this lesson because the same things happening today, and we're as guilty and subject to judgment as they were, because for the same reasons. Because we practice false religion. We've determined to make religion what we are comfortable with, not what God calls it to be. We set up idols. We determine things to be above and greater than the God that is above all things. We've stained the holy places by not showing reverence in the house of God. This should be a place of reverence, a place of fear. God is present where He is feared. We do all of these things. And because we do all of these things and we serve a perfect God who is perfect in everything and also perfect in His justice, then we should expect that the message that He's given to them, He's also delivering to us. And that's what I want to talk about today is how God, through this message, through this text in Scripture, is declaring what His judgment looks like. There are five visions of judgment in chapters 7, 8, and 9. Now, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, all three chapters. I'm just going to pick out the visions, the crux of the chapters, and talk to you about them. And this is why. And it's the only reason why. Because these five visions of Amos declare three significant truths about God's judgment. So here's those three truths. Well, one of the three. I'm going to get to each of them. Number one, please take notes. That's not the first point. (laughs) Please take notes. I'm very methodical and systematic about the way I teach so that you can learn beyond this room and so that you can test what I'm telling you. And so point one, God's judgment is relentless, but not unrighteous. Relentless is defined as to be constant, insistent, unremittable, and persistent. He is determined and insistent that his people be just. And his perfection requires that he deal with us justly. Now that's a great thing. Unless you're on the wrong side of that justice. And so he is established to determine up to, to establish. He is determined to establish uprightness in us. And so there's judgment. But can I tell you his judgment is unrighteous. His judgment is fair. There's a text in your in your Bible, Psalms twenty five eight that says, "Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore he instructs sinners in the way." Good and upright, righteous, good and righteous is the Lord. There will be a day of reckoning. There will be a day when you're going to stand on one side of the other. There's only at the end of eternity, or the end of your life, there's only one of two types of people. And on that day of reckoning, they're not going to be black people and white people. They're not going to be rich people or poor people. There's not going to be oppressed and depressed. There's not going to be tall and short, fat or skinny. There's going to be two kinds of people. Those that belong to Jesus and those that don't belong to Jesus. And that is the only thing that he will use to separate them. Are you a goat or are you a sheep? Do you belong to him or do you not belong to him? Why am I saying this? Because his perfect his perfection requires perfect justice. His perfect justice requires perfect judgment. And when judgment happens, his his judgment will be righteous and it will be fair. And he uses the first three visions to prove this point. Vision 1 out of verse 7 after out of chapter 7 reads like this. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, he was forming a locust swarm when the spring crops began to sprout. And behold, the spring crop was after the king's mowing. And it came about, when it had finished eating the vegetation of the land, that I said, Lord God, please pardon. How can Jacob, which is the which is name for Israel, stand? For he is small. Verse 3, the Lord changed his mind about this. It shall not be, said the Lord. Then the second vision. Thus the Lord God answered, or thus the Lord God showed me. And behold, the Lord God was calling to contend with them by fire. And it consumed the great deep and began to consume the farmland. Then I said, Lord God, please stop. How can Jacob, Israel, stand? For he is small. The Lord changed his mind about this. This too shall not be, said the Lord God. Let me explain these visions to you. So the very first vision. Remember, we're working on the, the umbrella idea that God's judgment is righteous and that he is upright. Amen? And so the very first vision... He goes to Amos, he says, Amos, I'm going to send locusts, and I'm paraphrasing. He said, I'm going to send locusts, and I'm going to send them during the second harvest, not the first harvest. The king's mowing is the first harvest. And Jacob or Amos said, please don't do that. Jacob can't stand it. You're going to kill them all. They're going to starve to death. Why would they starve them to death? Let me explain. So the first mowing, the first harvest, was the harvest of taxes." They mowed, they harvested, and they gave all of that as tax. They lived on the second mowing for the rest of the year. And so if God says, I'm going to send the locust and specifies the second harvest, that means he's going to destroy what they have to eat because they're not going to have anything to fall back on because the first harvest has already been taxed and given away. And so God is saying, I'm going to send locusts and everybody in the nation is going to starve to death. And he says, don't do that. They can't stand. They'll all die. And the Lord changed his mind and relented and said, okay, I won't do that. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send fire. It's going to be so all-consuming that it's going to burn up the depth. It's going to boil the water to nothing. And it's going to kill everybody. And he says, no, God, don't do that you'll kill everybody they can't stand and god said all right i changed my mind i won't do that what does this have to do with god being righteous everything first let me tell you let me let's deal with the theological problem of god changing his mind because some of y'all i'm about to read a verse you're going wait a minute you just said that's not that's not true God has foreknowledge. He does what he does based on his foreknowledge. He is in yesterday, tomorrow, today, the day after that, six years from now, a million years from now, all at the same time. And so sometimes he says things knowing, in his foreknowledge, our response to them. And provokes us to prayer on someone else's behalf. It's called intercession. So that we can see. How merciful and gracious He is. So he uses a terminology we understand, breathed by the Holy Spirit into the Word of God, to recognize that sometimes God calls us to intercession so that we can see His grace and mercy. So we've dealt with that theological problem, but why would that, why would doing those two things make him unrighteous? Why did he decide not to do it? Because he's righteous. And here's what I mean. God can't lie. Did y'all know that? I don't know. Sometimes I just, I just drop these huge theological bombs on you. Like God can't lie. And you're all, what? God is a God of his word. Numbers twenty three nineteen says, God is not a man that he should lie nor the son of a man that he should repent. And that word repent there literally means to repent. He has nothing to repent of. He's perfect. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? He can't lie. What's that got to do with this? Well, let me go on. He promised an everlasting covenant to Abraham. I'm trying to make a logical argument for you. Everybody follow me so far? He made an everlasting covenant with Abraham. Genesis 17, 7 says, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you through their generation for an everlasting covenant. Now, God told Abraham that his covenant will be everlasting with him and his descendants. If he destroyed all of them, he would be a liar because he broke the everlasting covenant and he would be unrighteous. And so he declared these two to show us his grace and mercy and to declare his righteousness. God's judgment is righteous. And so he says, all right, Amos. You feel me? You get where I'm coming from. Or thou dost get me where I'm coming from. And he drops the third vision on him. He says this, 7, verse 7, Thus he showed me, this is Amos talking, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. you guys know what a plumb line is? So a plumb line, a couple people shook their head, no. A plumb, they don't really use them anymore because we have levels and all that kind of stuff. But a plumb line is a line with a pointed weight at the end of it. That you hold next to something that you know is straight. And then you determine whether or not the line that you're trying to build is straight. It's perfect vertical. So he says, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to take. Behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said to me, what do you see, Amos? And Amos said, a plumb line. And the Lord said, behold, let me tell you what I'm about to do. I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people, Israel. I will spare them no longer. That's so good. Let me tell you why that's good. Because he's judging against perfectly vertical. He's judging against perfection. Instead of destroying all of them, he said, listen, it's true. I have made this promise to Abraham. I am going to save a remnant, but I'm only going to save because I'm righteous The righteous amongst you. And so I'm going to take what I know to be true, which was the law of God, and measure with a plumb line those amongst you that are still true. In the Old Testament, they had the law to measure. Now, in this time, we have the blood of Jesus Christ to measure against. I told you at the beginning. Are, are you standing on this side of the plumb line? Or you'll be tested true on this side of the plumb line. And that plumb line doesn't determine isn't determined by whether or not you think you should be on one side or the other. But by the perfection of Jesus Christ and the blood that he shed in your acceptance of it. There's a story I read some years ago of a teacher, sixth grade teacher, she... Gives her students an assignment. She said, I need you to get out a sheet of paper and a pencil. And they get get out a sheet of paper and a pencil, and she says, okay, this is what I need you to do. I need you to draw a line from the top of the bottom, from the top of the page to the bottom of the page. And then right then, as she's giving out the instruction, the principal walks in and says, I need to talk to you out in the hallway. So she walks out in the hallway, leaves the students with no further instruction. Leaves the students with no further instruction, so... They're in there, and she's out there for five or six minutes, and the kids start doing what kids start doing. Little Johnny's super proud of his line, right? He goes, man, look how straight that line is. That's a good line right there. And he looks over at Sally and says, hey, Sally, see that line right there? That's a good line right there. And Sally says, that is a good line, but look, my line's better. My line's straighter than your line. And they get into an argument about whose line is straighter and whose, whose is the most crooked. And so they call all the kids over from their desk and say, hey, Y'all look at these lines. You tell me which line is best. And they say, well, Sally's line's best. So Sally says, that's right. And somebody else says, but it's not as good as mine. And then another student says, it's not as good as mine. And before the teacher ends up coming back, they've all determined who has the least to straightest line in the class. And they're all content and they're happy with each other and excited about what great line drawers they are. And then the teacher walks back in the room. And they're all huddled around together in a mass. And she said, what are y'all doing? And Johnny said, well, we were just measuring each other's line to see who had the straightest. She said, I wasn't done with the instruction. And so they all go back to their desk, and she continues. She said, what I need you to do is get out a sheet of paper. And I need you to draw a line from the top to the bottom using a ruler. And when when they did that, they saw that none of their lines were the standard. This is so often our condition. We say, you know what, man? My line's, my line's straighter than Matthew's. Matthew's line straighter than Diane. Diane's line straighter than Dallas's. But it doesn't matter what Matthew's line looks like. Or Diane's line looks like, or Dallas's line looks like. It only matters the line you're being judged by. And that's what makes God righteous, is that the same standard is for all of us, and He's made that standard perfectly clear. And that standard is the standard we'll be judged by. Which side of the line do you stand on? Isn't that good? That's the first truth. That God is relentless in his judgment, but righteous. The second thing that Amos wants us to know, or God wanted Amos to know, is that God's judgment is exactly right on time. 8, 1 through 2 reads like this. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. This cracks me up. I know it's, it's pretty serious, but just the way it's written, it just cracks me up. Thus the Lord God showed me, and behold, there was a basket of summer fruit. He said, what do you see, Amos? And Amos said, I see a basket of summer fruit. I, just, I don't know why I think that's funny. I just do. Then the Lord said to me, the end has come for my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. And so he's saying. I've determined the time and the place. And I know when the fruit is ripe right for picking. There's a reason why this is so important. That we understand that God's judgment is right on time. Because God's judgment being on time. Ain't your time. So many of us put off giving our life to the Lord. or I'm going to ask forgiveness for that later. I'm going to deal with this problem in my life at a later date or this addiction that I have or whatever it is that I'm doing that I sh- know I shouldn't be doing according to the word of God. You feel the spirit provoking you, but you set it aside for another day. You're like Felix talking to Paul. Man, you almost had me. Just go away. I, I may be talking to you tomorrow. But you know what? Your fruit may be ripe today. God knows when the fruit is ripe, not us. I used to live in a duplex, and this duplex behind, behind the duplex about a half acre away into this field was a cherry tree. And It was a perfect cherry tree. I don't know who planted it, but it was beautiful. And when it got weighted down with cherries, this thing was just weighted down with cherries. And I can remember watching it from the time it budded out to the cherries getting bigger and bigger. Cherry is one of my favorite fruits. And so I, I just, I'm super excited, my mouth's watering now, thinking about a big bowl of fresh cherries, you know. And I, I remember thinking, it was like a th- Wednesday or a Thursday, I said, this weekend when I have time, I'm going to go out there, I'm going I'm to pick all those cherries, as many of those cherries as I can off that tree. And we got me a cherry picking basket, you know. I was super excited about getting some fresh cherries. And I walked the half acre out to where this tree is. And I look up and I even re- I go as far as to reach up. And I realize I, I'm grabbing nothing. There's not a. There's not a cherry on the tree. I don't know if I've ever been more disappointed in my whole life. The only thing on the tree were stems with a seed on the end of it where the birds picked all the flesh off of cherries. But not one single cherry tree. Not one single cherry in a whole bunch. I had misinterpreted when those cherries would be ripe for picking. And so I wasn't ready to harvest. God doesn't suffer from that problem. He knows exactly when the harvest is ready. And we need to be ready for it. You all I got tomorrow. You may not have tomorrow. You may not have the rest of today. The only thing you're promised is right now. And let me tell you, if the Spirit of God is provoking you to get something right or to get right, you better get right. Because he might be standing under your tree with his cherry basket, ready to pull you off a of branch. Number four. Or correction, number three. Oh, dang it, I missed one. <laughs> number three. And this is the scariest one to me. God's judgment is merciless to those who reject him. 9, 1 through 4 reads like this. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Smite the capitals so that the thresholds will shake, and break them on the heads of them all. When I will slay the rest of them with the sword, they will not have a fugitive who will flee or a refugee who will escape. Though they dig into Sheol, from there will my hand take them. And though they ascend to heaven, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide in the summit of Carmel, I will search them out and take them from there. And though they conceal themselves from my sight on the floor of the sea, from there I will command the serpent and it will bite them. And though they go into captivity before their enemies, from there I will command the sword that it will slay them. And I will set my eyes against them for evil and not for good. This is the scariest vision to me. God's saying when judgment comes, this is what's going to happen. I, I wrote it down here specifically just to, just to make it as plain as I can. On the day of judgment, when the day of judgment comes, you can dig holes in the ground and he will find you. You can ascend to heaven and he will find you. He, you can climb mountains, he will find you. You can hide in the sea, he will find you. You can hide amongst your enemies or be, be taken prisoner by them and he will find you. There is no place that you can hide. Because on that day, that day of judgment, when God has determined that the three count is going to happen, there is no hope for you. Judgment will happen. The scariest thing about this, I told you it's the scariest vision to me, is because of the first line. It says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and then He said all of these things. You're thinking, that's not that big a deal. Except that it's a huge deal. Let me tell you why. Or let me me ask a question. Why was an altar built? Why was any altar ever built? To offer sacrifice. To shed blood. To cover sin. That grace and mercy might be extended. And so he says on that day, you're not going to find the priest standing here. You're going to find me standing here. And I'm not accepting your sacrifice. Because your fruit's already been picked and it's ripe. Let me me reassure you, for those of you that don't know, and I don't mean assure, like make you feel better, but to confirm, there is no post-death salvation opportunity for you. The day that God decides that your fruit is ripe, and he stands beside the altar, there will be no more grace or mercy for you. That's why we make the decisions we need to make when God provokes us to make that. And I know this is a heavy word, guys, but let me tell you. These visions prove three things. That God's judgment is righteous. That he will save a remnant for himself. And you're either on the good side or the bad side of that righteousness. Not only that, but the same text says that his judgment is exactly at the right time. Whether you're ready or not. And when that judgment happens, that judgment will be merciless. For those who don't repent. You know, it's not a point, it's not a vision, but i got a fourth point for you. And it's the reason I love the Lord. Why He is so good. Because judgment always has an option. If you'll look at 7, chapter 7, verses 10. Then Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, sent the word to Jeroboam, king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against you. In the midst of the house of Israel, the land is unable to do to endure all his words for thus Amos says, Jeroboam will die by the sword, and Israel will certainly go from its land into exile. And so let me just kind of break it down for you what's happened here the The priest at Bethel went to the king Jeroboam and said, "Man, Amos is talking all this smack around Israel around town about how God's going to smite us and kill us and all that kind of stuff." And I just want you to know that he's saying that stuff. And apparently the king gave him a message to bring back to him, because then Amaziah said to Amos, Go, you seer, flee away to the land of Judah, and there eat bread, and there do your prophesying, but no longer prophesy at Bethel, for it is a sanctuary of the king and a royal residence. Bethel, we've already proven, is no longer a sanctuary for the king or a royal residence. But this is what he told him. Amaziah told Jeroboam, he's talking all this stuff, he's prophesying around town. And they rejected the prophecy. They sent the prophet back home. Judgment has a choice. You have that same choice. Are you going to listen to the mouth of the prophet? Are you going to believe what your pastor is telling you? And I'm not calling myself a prophet, but are you going to believe what the pastor is telling you straight from the word of God? I've not colored it. I've not rewritten it to make you feel good about yourself. I've spoken it as I bel- exactly as I believe God intends it for it to be spoken at this time and in this place. And you have a choice to avoid judgment. Are you going to listen and be judged true to plumb line or are you going to not listen? Some of you have already listened, and you're true. And I praise God for you, and God celebrates you. Angels in heaven celebrate you. But some of you may have not. And some of you that have, maybe haven't lived according to the truth that you know. And so we got a whole gamut of problems to deal with. Do I listen? Do I accept the grace that was given, that amazing grace we talked about at the beginning? Or do I look at my pastor and say, go away from me, Paul. Maybe I'll hear you tomorrow. As Felix did. My prayer is that you listen. Because judgment is real. And judgment is perfect. And judgment will come when you're not expecting it.